A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is dedicated by David Gamze in honor of his grandparents who were born and buried in Iran, Meshulam ben David Vezugato Hanomi Bat Avraham Gamze. Very noble and upstanding Iranian Jews who were very knowledgeable in Jewish law and custom. So this uh, is part two on Iranian Jewry. Got a lot of great feedback from part one. And um, just want to read a few of the letters I got uh, before I go into the topic of part two. We're going to move into the 20th century and talk a lot about Um, the Jewish community of Iran during World War II, and then we're going to move through the post-war and get to the revolution and and the role of Rabbi Herman Neuberger and and others in in the emigration from Iran and many of them who arrived in the United States. It's an interesting story. But before I get to that, um, uh, I want to just read a few of the letters that I got from uh, part one. Well, first there's one that is... No relation to the Iran episode is just a, a great uh, 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 feedback that I got, so I'll just share that as well. Um, just curious, how do you stay upbeat when you study and teach Jewish history, which is so full of persecution and torture? That's a great question. Um, you know, I don't have a, a ready answer other than the fact that there's, uh, there's, you know, I guess there's two parts of the answer. First of all, not everything in Jewish history is full of persecution and torture. And second of all, who says I'm upbeat? Um, now we go into the, some of the um, letters about the Iran episode. Here's the first one. I must be Meiche for the city in Chashuv Kehila of Jerba, Tunisia. In the Iran episode, you say it is the only place in the world existing since Bias Rishain. Jerba is also around since then, with several hundred families maintaining from Erlich Yiddishkeit uninterrupted. Uh, which is much more than Iran today, which which uh, is, is, uh, is significantly smaller. Okay, um, so first of all, I don't know if I would use the words Erlich and Yiddishkeit, which are Yiddish words when talking about a Sephardic Kehillah. Um, second of all, uh, I don't know if I said it's the only place in the world existing since uh, Bayez Rishon. I said, I think I said it's one of the only and that's related to the next letter, which I'm about to read. Really fascinating episode on Iranian Jewry. You mentioned that they are one of the only communities continuously in the same place since Bias Rishon. Weren't the Yemenites also? 
Another thing I'm never clear about is I look at Syrians, Iranians, Iraqis, Moroccans, all as Sephardim, but Sephardic technically means from Spain. Were these all from Spain and only went to these countries after the expulsion? Because it doesn't seem that way. If not, then why are they referred to as Sephardic Jews? And which communities are the ones that originate from Spain? So again, Yemenite community, also very ancient. The second point that uh, he raises is a valid point, which deserves its own episode or episodes, which is that all these countries had their own native communities. And following the expulsion from Spain, they were almost overwhelmed by the influx of uh, Spanish Jewish refugees, Sephardic Jews from Spain. And in many instances, not all, but in many instances, they, the Sephardic newcomers, because of their background, because of their developed, they were a very highly developed community and very proud and had a lot of rabbis and culture and wealth and everything else. They, they completely overwhelmed the native communities in Morocco and Iraq and Syria and many other places. But that's a great story. Here's another one from a prominent uh, 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 Persian rabbi in the Persian community. Shalom, thank you for the excellent podcast. A few small ha'arot. Number one, Mila'el almost never, doesn't really exist in Sephardi languages. So the name of the rabbi that you spoke about is Rabban, is pronounced Mila'ra. There's a patach under the resh, Rabban. Uh, number two, Hajj is just the Arabic cognate of Chag. They got the idea of an annual pilgrimage from us. Persians who had been to Eretz Yisrael were known as Haji. Uh, number three, next time please consider discussing Esfahan and Serach Bat Asher. Number four, Daniel is buried in Shush, which is the biblical Shushan. And there's a fantastic book on the subject, Rabbi Yehuda Landi's book, Purim in the Persian Empire. So that's that's one, and moving right into the next letter, and this is the final one I'll read. Um, I just wanted to mention Rabbi Landi's book, Purim in the Persian Empire, which is mentioned in the previous letter. I showed my family the remnants of Achashverosh's banquet in the Louvre a few years ago. You can see the palace of Achashverosh in Google Maps by typing Apadna Susa. Okay, that's it for now. And uh, since uh, the previous letter writer mentioned Isfahan and Serach Bat Asher, so um, just mentioned that in, the, in, in Isfahan, which is a prominent Jewish community, a very ancient Jewish community in Iran, so um, there's allegedly a whole story with Serach Bas Asher, the biblical Serach Bas Asher, who, according to um, rabbinic tradition, never passed away. So there's the cave that she rose up to heaven. Uh, she lived in Iran in her later years, and there's a cave where she supposedly rose up to heaven, and that was a shrine by the Jewish Jewish community in Isfahan, maintained that shrine, and they made the Jewish cemetery around it, and it was considered a, a big merit to be buried near that shrine, near that cave. And in fact, the Jews of Isfahan would make a pilgrimage there and spend the, day, the time around the high holy days, around Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. They would pray there, they would cry, they would... They would um, do all kinds of, you know, whole whole religious experience. So it's very interesting how that remained part of uh, Jewish life in Iran, this whole connection to Serach Basasher in uh, Isfahan. Okay, so we move along to 20th century Iranian Jewry. And I want to focus on Iran during 
the Second World War, post-war, the emigration of the Jewish community of Iran, even though there still is a Jewish community in Iran till today, but for the most part, most of them, the overwhelming majority, emigrated. Um, and uh, and then the whole story of, of the role of Rabbi Herman Neuberger and others in in rescuing Iranian Jewry. Did they need to be rescued, or what role did he play in establishing them in the United States um, most Iranian Jews, most Persian Jews today live outside of their native country, either in in Israel or in the United States, primarily in Los Angeles, Great Neck, Baltimore. I think there's a community in Atlanta and a couple other places uh, as well. Um, now, if you ask any of them how they left Iran, inevitably the terse answer is Iran. So the question is, how did that all happen? I remember uh, several years ago, I was visiting uh, the United States and I was on Central Avenue in Lawrence or Cedarhurst or Woodmere, wherever Central Avenue goes to. And I was walking with a friend of mine and uh, we passed by someone. We say hello because um, it's not New York City. It's already the suburbs. And and my friend tells me after this pe- fellow passed by, he says, by the way, you'd love to speak to this guy. Back in the 1980s, he smuggled Iranian Jews out of Iran on camels and uh, that got me very curious as to exactly what was the story there. Well, what, and of course, I never followed up on it and I never spoke to him. Hopefully, one day we'll get to speak to some people who were involved in these daring operations. Um, we'll get to that later on uh, on this uh, episode. So, at the turn of the century, um, Iranian Jewry is, on one hand, uh, large, relatively, between 100 and 150,000 Jews. There is some prosperous elements of the community. There is a lot of persecution and anti-Semitism, which he spoke about in part one. In fact, I mentioned the Jews of Isfahan. Uh, most of the Jews of Isfahan were trading in opium at the turn of the century, and which was a successful business because it connected to India and China. Iran was at a crucial place in, in world commerce and trade, uh, so India and China are in the east, and Iraq, and then further, the Ottoman Empire to the west. Um, so the Jews are at the center of the opium trade also, which is, I guess, quite exciting. So the then the Pahlavi dynasty rises, and the Jews under the Pahlavi dynasty with the modernization of Iran, for the most part, do a little bit better. There still is persecution. In fact, there was an American reform rabbi, Rabbi Joseph Saul uh, Kornfeld, who was the U.S. ambassador to Iran in the 1920s, and he did a lot to assist the Jewish community there um, in in this you know persecution. A very interesting story. I think, as far as I know, he was the first American rabbi who was a U.S. diplomat and official ambassador. Um, so uh, we have uh, as as the 1930s and World War II comes. So there's these pro-Nazi sympathies in the Iranian government. The Shah is pro. Uh, Hitler, uh, and uh, and therefore Iran it ends up being, plays a central role in the story of World War II, which is often overlooked. People don't think of Iran as a, as a place where World War II operations took place. It was actually a central theater to World War II in several respects. Number one, because of the pro-Nazi sympathies of the government, there was an Anglo-Soviet invasion at the end of 1940, in the summer of 1940, not even then, the summer of 1941, um, and it was part of the British Empire's uh, uh, um, plan to cover its flank. They shouldn't get too, um, too uh, 
British India to cut off the Middle East. They had invaded Vichy uh, French-held Syria and Lebanon. Um, they invaded Iraq. So here the English also invade Iran together with the Soviets who were trying to cover their flank after Barbarossa started and there was the invasion, uh, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union and they didn't want uh, Hitler get to the Azerbaijan, the Baku uh, oil fields. So the two of them take over Iran and and uh, um, it also becomes a supply line to the Soviet Union. It's known as the Persian Corridor. The Lend-Lease from the United States um, goes through Iran as one of the main routes of supplying the Soviet Union, which ultimately wins the war in the Eastern Front. It's an American industry which, uh, which produces a lot of the material. You also have the fascinating story of the exit uh, from the Soviet Union to Ultimately, they end up in Italy, but they go through Iran. The Vladislaw Anders Polish army were taking Polish refugees who are uh, in in the Soviet Union. Um, and Anders army goes exits the Soviet Union, goes through Iran, eventually goes through British-held Palestine, um, where some of the Jews who are members of the Polish Anders army defect, including Menachem Begin. I mentioned that in the Begin episode. Uh, but Anders continues to Egypt, and then eventually they're deployed in uh, in, uh, in, uh, in in Italy. In fact, I think most of the many of the casualties in the Battle of Monte Cassino were, were Polish. Actually, that's a different story. Um, in a, so that 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 becomes a Jewish story also because many Jewish refugees tag along with Anders' army and stay in Iran. It's their first stop, and the Iranian Jewish community is and is active in assisting them. The Jewish agency is active. And um, there's also the Tehran Conference, the first conference of the big three. Uh, Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill takes place in Tehran in October-November 1943, which is a fascinating conference. The decision is taken to open a second front. Uh, This is the first time the big three meet. Um, they talk about Iranian sovereignty. They, there's a lot of issues that are discussed, uh, which have far-reaching effects on both the post-war world and specifically also to Iran uh, as well. Uh, more getting back to the Jewish story, there's all these Jewish refugees, like I mentioned, who come end up in Iran, including that as a group of children who are either without any parent or with one parent, for the most part orphans. They become known as the Yalde Tehran. They are Polish Jews who came through the Soviet Union um, and had been able to escape by tagging along with Anders' army, and they end up in Iran. So the Yalde Tehran are not Iranian Jews, they're Polish Jews who end up in Tehran. Uh, so uh, that's a whole story of bringing those Yalde Tehran. The Jewish agency sets up, establishes an orphanage for them. Henrietta Zold herself, who's in charge, of course, of the youth Aliyah, Aliyah Tanar, she interviews many of the children and tries to find out about their family background. And there's this whole issue of getting them uh, certificates from the British mandatory government to get them to Palestine. And then once they get to Palestine, do they get sent to secular uh, kibbutzim or do they get sent to religious places? And that becomes a legendary uh, dispute in the Yishuv, with, uh, which I'm not going to get into. I think it deserves its own episode. But the Yalde Tehran starts in Iran at, at this time. Um and like you know, in relating to that, there's you know quite active Zionism among Iranian Jews. Uh, there's an act, you know they were part of many of them are part of the Zionist movement. There's also active communism. Many Iranian Jews are communists, which is also interesting. And 
One other connection is the Joint, the Joint Distribution Committee, the most famous uh, Jewish philanthropic organization in Jewish history, probably, um, was active in Iran from the 1920s, already uh, assisting Jews there and funding all kinds of projects and lobbying. So they're there for qu- quite a few, some time, and then, of course, they continue uh, during World War II and uh, following the war as well. Um, so that's, that's, that covers World War II. Now, following the war, over a third of Iranian Jewry emigrated during the 1940s and 50s, following the establishment of the State of Israel, so it's mostly to Israel. There are commercial ties between Iran and Israel, and diplomatic ties, which has its ups and downs through the decades. But there's a strong connection between the Iranian and Israeli Jewish community. There's visitors from Israel to Iran during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, including chief rabbis of Israel, Rebitzak Nisim, uh, later on, uh, the Rashiva Parat Yosef, who had Iranian ancestry, Rebin Si and Abba Shaul, also visited Iran and others. So you're talking about that it's a still a vibrant Jewish community, um, and there's you know connections to Israel. There's this you know between the two countries and between the two Jewish communities and the visits back and forth. So that's the the um, the, the screenshot uh, at the, at that time. So when the king of Iran, the Shah, uh, came to, back to power. Things quieted, quieted down, which is, you know, of course, another corny joke. And during the reign of the last Shah, Mohammad Reza Shah, uh, it was very prosperous for Iranian Jewry. Um, many of the poor Persian Jews had already emigrated. So many of the ones who stayed were um, more well off. Over 80% of Iranian Jews were middle class. And 10% were quite wealthy. There were professors, doctors, writers, all professions. It should be noted that though... Through most of the years of his decades-long rule, the last Shah was considered good for the Jewish community. In his later years, he gradually expressed suspicion and even hostility towards the Jewish community. So on the eve of the revolution in 1979, there were approximately 80,000 Jews in Iran, by some accounts even closer to 100,000. At the time, it was probably the largest remaining Jewish community in the Islamic world. Most other Jewish communities in the Islamic world had already emptied out in the 1950s and 60s to Israel and to other countries. Um, So this is a very prominent and important Jewish community remaining. Um, 60,000 of those Jews lived in Tehran, so that's the central uh, part of the Jewish community at this point, and the balance was scattered in various other towns and cities across Iran. So the... um, Islamic revolution comes in the end of the reign of the Shah. He abdicates, and the revolution is a process which takes place over about a year and a half, two years, which is an interesting story also, and how that takes place. Um, There's many Jews and many Jewish leaders, both rabbinical and lay leaders, who supported the revolution for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, Iranian Jews, local Jews. In the years following the revolution, tens of thousands emigrated to Israel and to the United States and some elsewhere, and the community at this point significantly shrunk. The wealthy were the first to leave, um, and uh, it was also because of the Iran-Iraq war which followed, and excuse me, many young Jews were being drafted. It was a period of uncertainty. No one knew how Khomeini and what his policy would be. Eventually Khomeini makes this interesting distinction between Jews and Zionism, which which it seems to be the official policy of the uh, Iranian government until today. Um, so, but at but in the but for quite a, some time, it wasn't clear what would happen, especially with the Iran-Iraq War, and most of them left. Um, so, 
that becomes an impetus. The, the war itself becomes an impetus. And here we come to the fascinating story of the role of Rabbi Herman Neuberger and other U.S. Jewish activists. Um, the I called it from several articles which address the topic. There's lots more out there. Just a sampling of articles that I saw from the Jewish Action, the Baltimore Jewish Times, the a website called Dea Vahadibur, and all kinds of other articles that I just bumped into when I looked up some of the story. But I, th- I think there's plenty more out there. But of course, uh, more so, I spoke to his own grandson, Rabbi Neuberger's grandson, the legendary and uh, uh, very knowledgeable and dedicated listener of Jewish History Soundbites, Eli Neuberger, who's a veritable warehouse of information on almost every conceivable Jewish history topic. And Eli's contributions are in reality in almost every episode of Jewish History Soundbites, even though I don't mention him in every episode, but especially in regards to this, which is a story about his own illustrious grandfather. Sally was gracious enough to share much information, stories, tidbits, and insights. I want to give a thank you to Eli Neuberger. So the initial involvement of of Rabbi Neuberger came when the Shah wanted to um, regulate religious education in schools, both Muslim and Jewish and anything else in the country, Otsar HaTorah, which was the primary religious school system, was now in trouble because of this. And, and, and in fact, uh, Rabbi Neuberger's relative, Rabbi Yosef Leib Shachatovitz, was the one who ran the Otsar HaTorah in the Pacific Rim in those countries, in that area. And therefore, Rabbi Neuberger traveled to uh, Iran to meet with the education minister, to meet with government officials, to see how Otsar HaTorah, the, the network of religious schools providing religious education, uh, to Iranian Jews, how it was faring under the new regulations. Again, this is still in the 70s with the Shah in charge. And he had this idea to upgrade the education of, uh, of, uh, of the school system and of Iranian Jewry. He had the idea to get some Iranian Jewish students to come study in Ner Yisrael at a high-level yeshiva in the United States. And then they would move back. After several years of training, they would go back and they would be rabbis in communities. They would be rebbe's in the schools. They would be Russia yeshiva. They would they would transform the education of Iranian Jewry in Iran. That was the initial plan. And some of the initial uh, uh, students came on students' visas, and they began to st- commence their studies at Ner Yisrael. But then the revolution began. And then it became a whole new story. And it wasn't just Rabbi Neuberger, Rabbi Herman Neuberger. It was Agudas Yisrael, Rabbi Shisherer, who was his close friend. They were involved. There were Satmer uh, Askanim. There were other activists. Um, he worked with pol- uh, all kinds of politicians, uh, Stephen Solars, uh, and um, and uh, Iranian Jewish activists. There was a member of the Sassoon family, who was an Iraqi Jewish family, who was involved, and, and, and really a lot of people from all over. And, you know, I would be remiss in, in, in not mentioning every single person's name for the historical record, but of course, um, unintentionally and inadvertently leaving out some important names, and I'm, I'm happy to be corrected in that regard. Um, but the, 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 uh, the idea was that, that to, 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 you know, get them, you know, help as many people who wanted to come out to be to get out as refugee visas, refugee status. Uh, to get there was a, they opened a line of escape across the border with Turkey. They had all kinds of operations to assist anyone who wanted to leave, especially young people. Once the draft began, uh, and they were basically used as fodder for the uh, in the Iran Iraq War. Terrible conditions. 
Um, and the largest, a large contingent comes to Baltimore. Herman Neuberger tried to get other yeshivas involved to accept students as well, and some of them took in a few token ones, but the largest contingent came to Neri Sorol, and he made a special track for them. He wanted them to preserve their Iranian Jewish heritage and their identity, and to become leaders in Iranian Jewish communities now in the United States. It was less so back in Iran as what the initial plan had been, and uh, and therefore he wanted them to keep their own nusach, to keep their own minion, to keep their own customs. Uh, and and he, he he desired for them. He didn't want them to integrate into uh, to you know to uh, to the to, to 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 just you know be subsumed into the Ashkenazi culture of Nari Yisrael. He wanted them to be proud and preserve their own heritage. In fact, uh, one of the Iranian, one of the Persian Jewish customs was uh, to to have the Birkas Kayanim, have the Kayanim give their, their bracha every morning, just like in Israel. So, uh, but they, they did it even outside of Israel. So Rabbi Herman Uberger was a levy. He would go and wash the hands of the, I, the Persian students who were Kayanim to encourage them to keep their tradition, to keep it going, even though that wasn't the custom of the rest of the yeshiva. Uh, so he really was uh, intent on having them. And I think if you look around today, many large percentage of the uh, rabbinical leaders of the Renaissance, uh, really, I think it's the best way to describe it, the Renaissance of Iranian Jewry, the Iranian Torah community, uh, most of them, or maybe, I don't know, most, uh, and check the exact numbers, but many, many of them are graduates of Neri Yisrael and the vision of Reb Herman Neuberger. So to, just to give a little bit more background uh, as to how this story played out, um, the Shah was very suspicious of religious schools because, in, in, in general, during the 70s, he was cracking down on a lot of institutions because he was suspicious of revolution, of was fomenting revolution. And, uh, and, um, and therefore, there was this going to be this new regulation on, on all religious schools, and there would be, uh, it would interfere with their Torah studies. And, Initially, he came just to assist with that because Herman Neuberger was an activist in general. But once he had this brainstorm about uh, bringing them back, then it became an, a whole, a whole, uh, you know, story of bringing them to Baltimore, and that only intensified with the uh, with the revolution. Now, that operation of taking them out lasted for many years. It wasn't a one-time thing. It lasted through the 1980s, even into the 1990s. Eventually, the Iranian government. Was was more accommodating in providing passports to people who wanted to emigrate. Um, that happened in the mid '90s, I believe. So, um, so the, the, the things were able to change. But for the most part, during the late, you know, late '70s, the entire decade of the 1980s and and the early '90s, you had to literally smuggle them out across the border, um, and uh, and they had to seek asylum as political refugees. He probably, the numbers differ according to different records, but he probably assisted in the emigration of between 800 and 1,000 Persian Jews, um, which is, you know, an amazing uh, endeavor. Uh, so, uh, of course, many more emigrated during this time also, so obviously many, many other people uh, deserve credit as well. Um, and uh, and um, there was um, Rabbi Zoldan Sassoon, who was... Uh, who'd, Directed an English businessman from an Iraqi Jewish family, we mentioned earlier, who directed the international Sephardic religious school system, the Yitzhak Tyra that I mentioned, that was uh, also involved in this um, in this uh, whole story. Eventually, 
um, between Neuberger and Ramesh Sher of the Agudis Yisrael and other activists, they were able to get the State Department to to uh, and 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 Stephen Solars I mentioned before to um, to uh, to get the you know have work with Turkey to uh, get diplomatic. Uh, Diplomatic, uh, you know, issue with with Turkey to get them to uh, um, get assurances from the Turkish authorities when when Iranian Jews would cross the border and be able to stay there, and he then was able to get them tourist visas to get to Vienna, and he uh, 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 got a place for them to stay in Vienna until he was able to get them into the United States. It's a whole clandestine operation. Um, which uh, lasted for a long time. Um, the the um, he, he was Rabbi Neuberger was uh, very proud of the fact that he had them maintain their own traditions. He felt that they would never have had an impact. They would never be able to have them graduate from Neri Yisrael and go back to their own communities and be accepted by their own communities that were being established in LA and Baltimore and Great Neck and other places if they were seen as uh, as just american yeshivish uh, ashkenazim who had learned when who went to Neri Yisrael. the fact that they completely stayed with their iranian traditions um was was the story of the success so the fact that he was very uh, uh, you know intent on that and very uh, particular about that was uh, the reason that it was it was so successful um so so it's interesting. Someone recently told me a story. It happened to be. I just had a, uh, on one of the tours I was doing, someone just happened to tell me the story. I wasn't even planning on doing this episode at the time, that he was in Neri Yisrael when uh, a lot of the Iranian students came. And there was a guest speaker, Reb Shalom Shvadron, the great Maggid of Yerushalayim. And he said that, he, of course, Reb Shalom Shvadron spoke in Yiddish. And even if he spoke in Hebrew, he spoke in Lashon HaKodesh, which would be an Ashkenazi pronunciation of Hebrew. And none of these Iranian students understood. So what um, what 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 Rabbi Neuberger had done was the or Bruderman, whoever it was, they had people translate for them simultaneously, like uh, like uh, like you know, like if they're sitting at the UN or the Nuremberg trials, whatever it was. Pick your favorite uh, place where they do translations, and um, and he had them translate simultaneously. And no one told Rabbi Shalom Shvadron about it, and he thought that people were schmoozing during his speech, and he got very upset. He started yelling at them, to chutzpah, you're talking in the middle of my drusha. So, uh, so you have that. But there's, uh, today there's uh, um, Iranian shuls, Iranian schools, Iranian communities, Arham Mizrach in Baltimore, and places in LA, which I think is the largest one. Um, and the, these are, you know, successful, growing communities. It's literally a renaissance of Jewish life that took place, much, much to the credit of people like Herb Herman Neuberger and others who were, um, who were, uh, who, who enabled it to happen. There's another uh, last story with uh, Iran and Jews, and that's the story of Mark Rich and Iranian oil, which uh, I don't know if it's a story we we can focus on now. It's getting a little late, but that was a fascinating story. Pretty much the only one who was involved in getting Iranian exports of oil for about 15 years um, was the story of Mark Rich and Glencore um, and other Jews who were his partners, all originally from Phillips Brothers, but that's a whole story of the American corporate industry and and uh, and and how that uh, came toppling down because he was engaging in illegal activities. Uh, today, there's still a Iranian Jewish community uh, somewhere between nine and fifteen thousand, maybe a drop more by other accounts, 
Uh, so the Iranian Jewish community story is not over, both in Iran itself and its uh, continued communities worldwide. So this is part two of Iranian Jewry. And this is Yehuda Geber with your sister's soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudageber.com for questions, comments, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.